You're listening to Rosie Cole's Vaudeville Broadcast. This program may contain adult content, so if you're under 18, please either get permission or switch it off. Hello, podcast listeners. Welcome to another episode. And today I am with the fabulous Michael Twaits. Hello, Michael. Hello. <laughs> um, so, obviously, uh, not everyone knows who you are, even though they absolutely should. Um, so what is it that you do for our listening public? Okay, I'm a drag queen, cabaret compere, and actor who does all of the above in basically wherever I am, I feel like I'm the other thing. When I'm in drag, I feel like I'm an actor. When I'm doing a singing job, I feel like I'm a comic. When I'm booked for comedy, I feel I'm an actor or a singer. Always feel a bit out of place because I kind of fell into cabaret through my acting work and then did my cabaret work initially to promote my theatre show. That was seven years ago and now I'm still earning a living wearing heels and dresses and sequins. It's um, not a bad way to earn a living, well, is no, it? No. <laughs> it's pretty good. So you say you so you started as an actor? Yes. When, I still am, as yeah, and when. Of course. Um so when when did you first realise you wanted to be on the stage and dive into this um, madness? Well, I started acting at school. I mean, one of my first memories is being the doctor in Miss Molly Had a Dolly at nursery school. Um, I've always enjoyed doing things like that. Um, I played the Sugar Plum Fairy in the Cub Scouts Jamboree performance once. That was award-winning. I fell so off the stage. <laughs> And that was obviously my first time in drag. Um, <laughs> but basically, it was probably year nine, ten at school when I started properly thinking, actually, I could do this as a career rather than I can do this for fun. Mm. And I joined the Chichester Festival Youth Theatre because I grew up on the South Coast and it was nearby. And then from there, I went on to the County Youth Theatre and that was when I was at sixth form and they just said, you should go for drama school. However, I went to university first and studied performance and directing and the full shebang of theatre rather than just acting. That's very smart. I'm pleased I did now. Yeah. At the time, I wasn't convinced. But then in my third year, I actually transferred from... I went to University of Kent and I studied for my third year in LA. I went to UCLA and studied acting there, and Americans have a very different sort of conservatoire training, and you can do it at a university. So I was on one of the best acting courses in, well, the States, but was still at my university. And then I came back, and it was a four-year degree I did, and in your fourth year you specialised in a different subject, and I specialised in directing. Then I graduated, it all went well, and then I was kind of like, yes, I'm going to do the drama school thing. But as I'm sure other people who've been to drama school understand, it was fucking expensive. (laughs) So I took a year out. I worked at the box office at the National Theatre and saw every possible show going. That's really smart as well. Which was great and enjoyed. That was a wonderful year, and I was kind of like, in a way this wouldn't be a bad life, working in a brilliant theatre, seeing all the shows, being around it all. I enjoyed still being part of the theatre, even if I wasn't 
being an actor. Um, but I had a place at Mount View for my postgrad. So while I was working there, I was working five days a week there and working in a call centre at the weekend or on my day off and doing sort of amateur dramatics, took a show to Edinburgh with a group and things like that. Wow. So yeah. kind of hit it hard in that, that year yes. off. Yes. <laughs> well, yeah. Off, I mean, really there was no point off. in having a year off and then kind of getting to the end of it and being, oh, I didn't save enough money. Mm. I don't, if you're going to do something, do it properly. You know, you've got, if you're going to do it in one year, do it in one year. And it was tight and it was hard work, but it was also, it was amazing. Yeah. So going back a little bit, how did you find it out in the States? Because that is such a different experience. Yes. The the main thing that was different was in the States, it was an awful lot more, I refer to it as inside out rather than outside in. So they would start a rehearsal very neutral and just get to know the character and do all the workshopping around the character. Whereas I would get a script and read it and be like, oh, he's got a limp. And I would start trying out different limps or find the physicality of the character and find the voice through what's written in the script. Whereas they would find the physicality and the voice through, I think this line here indicates that he may have been sexually abused as a child <laughs> and I'm going to go and do loads of research into that whereas in England it's much more here's your script get up and do it that's not working try something else try something else so at day one I thought all the actors around me were awful in the rehearsal room because they're <laughs> reading a script as if they're reading a my first book book <laughs> and I'm there throwing myself into a full performance. Yeah. But my performance probably only moved a few metres from the first reading to the final performance, whereas theirs went on this huge journey. Um, so, yeah, that was an interesting what did you, culture clash. Do you think the approach... Do you think the approaches produce results that are, like, as good as each other? Or do you think... Do, is there one that you prefer, really? Because I know everyone's got their preferred method. I definitely prefer the more... British European method I'm not I'm not saying it's better I do think it's better from where I'm coming from because I do quite unusual performance big characters sometimes multiple characters I think for film acting there's a definite use to the backstory and the being immersed in that character because when you've got a camera in your face you don't move at all every flick of an eyebrow says something. So it's just about the depth of character that's in your face, almost. But when you're on stage doing something like Burkhoff or, you know, these big performances, there's no way you can do, well, emotionally, I think I'd stand downstage. Yeah. No, the director <laughs> said, stand downstage and do a big shape. I'm going to stand downstage and do a big shape. That's the job. You know, look forward, face out, speak up. Yeah. Um, and also on stage, unless you're in the front couple of rows, you're not going to see all the the real nuances in the face. Yeah. yeah, like if you want people to see those nuances, you have to project them. Yes. Which means making them less nuancy, like making them big. I think depending on the size of the theatre. Absolutely, I think it is kind of horses for courses, mm. but that was the main difference I found. Interesting. And what was it like living out there? I loved it. The first two months, I hated LA because it's so disparate. Rather than one city, it's like 13 large towns all next to each other, each with their own ways and culture. The transport system is cr 
crazy. There's no decent public transport. You know, I've been living in London and the tube is one of the best in the world, so even though it's, everyone complains about it. It is awful when it stops, but actually it's amazing and it's only awful because you've become so reliant on it. In LA, in the centre of LA, you've got Beverly Hills and the rich people of Beverly Hills won't let anyone tunnel underneath their land because they'll all slide off into the valley. Oh my God. And that's why there's no infrastructure in LA when it comes to underground. So you have to get buses or cabs everywhere. That's appalling. I knew everyone in LA drove mm. and that was also horrendous because there's so much traffic. Yeah. But like, that's crazy. Yeah. That's so crazy. But the, the other interesting or strange experience of LA was on the course, people were much more superficially based on their appearances, there was an awful... At drama school in the UK, there is a bit of, you need to be fit, you need to be at the top of your game. But when I was in LA, people were having nose jobs and ears pinned back whilst still training. Oh my lord. You know, it's quite, a couple of the girls had boobs done and it's all, you know, I'm not saying the course leader was like, you should do this, but it wasn't frowned upon in... It's kind of part of the culture. Yeah. Kind of silent, sort of... Yeah, and it was it very... It will help you if... Maybe. Yeah. And 90% of the job is just the way you look. Oh, mm. That sounds horrendous. It's different. <laughs> yeah. I don't think I'd be able to deal with that. <laughs> no, no. That must have been a really crazy thing to just have that culture around you. Of just... Yeah, it was, it was a huge wake-up call to... I think, like most people who actually ended up having a career in performing arts, when you're at university or college or whatever else you feel quite a big fish in a smallish pond but the going to LA suddenly everybody was big fish and everyone everyone had gone to that school not because of the training but because of the network that it had and the fact that it was minutes away from all of the major Hollywood studios and all the contacts and almost everybody there was playing a very serious game which is very different to how it was in Canterbury where we were just kind of you know rolling around on the floor wearing black clothes doing performance art. <laughs> That's my favourite bit. Yeah. <laughs> so, came back to the UK, had your final year, year out, and mm-hmm. then, um, and then drama school. Yes. Um, did one year post-grad acting. And what was that? Well, compared to LA, that must have been so different. It was, yes. Um, everybody has negative university, college drama experiences. I obviously did at times. But overall, it was brilliant. The training that I got there was just what I needed. I was worried I would be shortchanged just doing one year, and I should have always done three years and not gone to university. But actually, I think three years would have done my head in. There's only so much rolling around on the floor and getting your spine (laughs) perfectly aligned that one needs. Um, And also, when you're a little bit older, you take it much more seriously. Um, we were most of us on the course were paying for it ourselves, and therefore we were down to business and very serious about it. I did, I did bump heads with a lot of the faculty about casting. I was always being given roles that were not unsuitable, but weren't the obvious casting for me. You know, I quite often was playing sea captains and Macbeth and the officer. And I was kind of like, okay, that's fine. But we're doing a restoration drama and there's a fop running around with a big wig and a walking stick. I would kill it. <laughs> and they were like, no, 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 no. You need to go over here and play the vicar. I was like, oh, right. uh, Boring. Um, yeah, and I, 
I didn't like the fact that you were being assessed on something that you were almost being set up to fail at. Bizarre mind game they're playing with yeah, you. Yeah, they're trying to get you out of your comfort zones and get you to be as well-rounded as possible. They're trying to break you. But without ever giving you an opportunity to show where you would be best suited. For my final amount of you, we did three kind of showcase projects. One was a full showcase in the West End where we chose our own scene, and that was perfect. The other was a short film, which was great because not many university, college, drama schools do that. So you had a bit of showreel straight away. And then the other was a play that was a two-week run in a kind of fringe venue. And in the play, I played a 60-year-old priest slash soldier who tamed pigeons. Had two monologues that were letters home. He had a Lancashire accent. I jumped over a wall and died. I was kind of like, why? (laughs) I mean, obviously you needed someone to play this role. But at what point did you look at that script and think, ah, Michael, yes. (laughs) It's ridiculous. Um, So yeah, it was... Swings and roundabouts, but it was, I think, that whole experience is what drove me to write my first theatre show. I did a the one-year course, and it was a diploma, but you could do an MA module. So I did the MA, which was a kind of a side course, where you just had to write a, dis- a performative dissertation, I think is how they phrased it. And I wrote a theatre show about all the different characters one gay man could be so academically it was based on the idea of performative self that you're different depending on your audience so when you go to your mum's house you're one character when you go down the pub with your friends you're another and how you have different strands to your personality so I took the different gay strands as it were that sounds really dodgy Um, (laughs) but I took all the gay characters or the different ideas of that and blew them up into big characters. So the camp me became a drag queen. The politically minded me became an activist. The sort of diva became a musical theatre star. The family man became a bit of a, a narcissistic child, I guess. But they each <laughs> had their own... They were all me. They were all a representation of a gay man. But for drama school, I just wanted to sort of be, well, you've said all year oh, I can do that, as if it's one thing, as if it's just one monotonous play-the-camp card. So I did an hour-long show that showed all the different things it could be, and it worked. I got a very, very good mark, and it changed my whole degree. It sounds like a fantastic piece. Yeah, it was really, really exciting. And the But Mountview also had only been doing the MA a couple of years, and basically said, this is the type of thing we've been waiting for someone to do, other people were just giving a lecture with some a couple of monologues thrown in, whereas I did a theatre show. So they helped me remount it. So when their new intake came in, we performed it at the beginning of the year. Also, I used it as a showcase and invited Soho Theatre and Oval House and the Drill Hall, which was going at the time, Bassey Arts Centre. And they actually all came, which wow. was bizarre that they all came to Wood Green to see someone, because I thought no one's going to come, but they did. And then Oval picked it up, and I did a what was called a first bite with them. Then I did a three-week three run. That had gone well, so they reprogrammed it for a six-week run the following year. And during that point, I was also doing a, an R&D of another show with them. 
and then so that gonna... basically started my career. The yeah, show that was Confessions running. for Dancehall, yeah. which was the show that basically got me into cabaret, established me as a theatre performer, and also was a the showcase I never really got from drama school. Yeah. Well, that's a really, again, really smart choice, you know, saying, okay, I haven't had a showcase, I'm going to do a showcase of all my skills and all the different facets of me and do it in a smart, interesting way. Mm. And then invite everyone to see it, and that—that's yeah. Amazing. And it was—it worked really well. I could never have guessed it would have turned out the way it did. The support Mountview gave me, the principal was the one that really championed it. He was the chief examiner for the MA module, so had no—we'd had no contact with him throughout the course. And the first time I met him properly was the week we were doing our assessments, and I was kind of unsure how he was going to take what I'd gone to do but the first character that started the show was the drag queen because I thought let's throw the biggest and most ridiculous at them straight away but also I wanted to set up the idea that they could think that's all they're getting that I'm just going to do a drag show it was very much inspired by the type of drag I'm not a fan of or wasn't a fan of what I it's kind of insulting, would refer to as end of the peer drag. Very old school, very, yes, my dear, oh, yes. Um, <laughs> and lots of jokes about fish and misogyny and quite aggressive and bitter. Not very technically well layered or structured. So it was actually more of a pastiche of drag than a, what I would do now as a drag performer. And the first time I did it, all the people coming into the room, it was nine o'clock in the morning for an assessment, and I had a bar open with gin and tonics on side, and I was kind of just throwing insults at everyone, necking these drinks, passing the drinks out, climbing over the audience. <laughs> and I think one of the biggest rules in drag is that you have to play to the power figures. You can't ignore um, the elephant in the room. And I was being assessed. I was climbing over people with a microphone cable, and I accidentally started choking someone with the cable that was going behind me. It was kind of across their neck. And I was like, well, don't blame me. Blame this cunt. He's the one that hasn't bought me a cordless mic. All I asked for for my MA was a cordless mic, so this would work. But no, we're at Mountview. Not a pot to piss in, not a window to throw it out. And I just went for it. And he was just sat there like, oh, my God. He couldn't believe that it was happening. But it could have gone either way. He could have just found the whole thing offensive. So I went through all the different personas or characters and it kind of climaxed in a bit of a, almost a burlesque dance of me just taking them all off and then just sitting on the floor and just talking honestly about why I'd created the project initially. Um, and yeah, it worked. And that's how I started with Cabaret, really. Because mm. Oval House knew the show was needing a bit of work obviously but had potential but they were worried it was going to play to nobody because I'd just graduated I didn't have any credits to my name didn't have a following so Ben Evans who was the head of programming at Oval at the time just sort of said I'm just go and speak to the Vauxhall Tavern just go and meet these people over here and just sort of sent me to a few different venues and I turned up and did guest spots. I called the bingo on the Monday night at the tavern. T 
turned up and did a couple of songs. Just really stupid things. Not, I didn't really have a niche or an act at that point. And also I was finding my feet with cabaret because I didn't want to take the pastiche of a drag queen out onto the circuit. I didn't want to go onto the cabaret circuit and be, and people think that what I was doing in the show was for real. So I had to find my way to get, develop my own cabaret character that still promoted confessions, but wasn't taking the piss out of other people who were working on the cabaret <laughs> scene. Basically, mm. don't uh, sh- shit on the people that might give you jobs. Exactly. <laughs> Was that your first experience with drag as well, the show? Yes. Until the morning of the exam, I'd never put on all the drag gear. Wow. I bought a wig the day before from one of the dodgy shops in Wood Green, put on some fake eyelashes, and one of my friends is, or was a drag queen in Southampton, and he was coming to Mount View the following year, and was kind of like, I'm putting drag behind me, I'm going to come and be a proper actor, I'm coming to Mount View. So he gave me one of his old dresses. But now, six, seven years on, um, he and I both work at Celador on a Monday night. Oh, um, so he's come, he's kind of gone full circle as well. Come back to drag. Yeah. He and I have a lot in common because the fact it's that thing of, we are cabaret artists, and we are actors. But rather than hiding one away from the other, I never am ashamed of setting to, in an audition for an acting job, when they say what you've been up to. I will talk about the play I did a few months ago, but I'll also talk about the fact that on Monday night I'm doing a live music here with a pianist and then I'm hosting at JoJo's on Sunday and wherever else I'm going. Because as far as I'm concerned, it is all one job. You're always playing a part of sorts. Yeah, it's all all performance. It's all, you're all on stage in front of an audience. Yeah. Just so interesting how people draw that line between oh well this is what I do in this world and this is what I do in that world but it's the same arena in many ways Um, and I think places like Soho Theatre are beginning to catch on to the cabaret as actually very exciting yes I after Confessions I wrote two new shows one of which was very theatre based that I only did for a few nights and then taught for about six months with different companies about developing, and then it just, as these things do, it never happened. And the other was called Icons, and it was a, what I'd call a kind of pure cabaret theatre show. I played four characters um, who were all fans of different celebrities, and it was about celebrity culture, and I mean Heat magazine kind of being the bible of celebrity culture as it was back then Um, and I took that to the Soho Theatre in 2009 2010 maybe it was just before they opened the cabaret room downstairs so I was in the studio upstairs it was great I loved doing it I was so so pleased to be right in the centre of London had so much footfall for you know, people just turning up. However, they hadn't quite got the cabaret comedy and theatre split quite right. So they billed me as comedy in the studio upstairs. I'd very much set it up as being nearer the theatre side than comedy, because I never view myself as a comic, even when I'm doing kind of comedy nights or 
mixed bill nights where I'm comparing and I am basically just being a bit silly, it's not comedy in the sense that I'm writing jokes and telling jokes. I just talk and it's just live performance. If it's funny, that's great. But usually what I'm talking about is just my life and being a bit silly. So being in that comedy bracket was a bit... It made it a tougher sell than I think it would have been had they have had the cabaret section as they do now. Yeah. Um, it's good that they've cottoned on. Yeah. They're really championing it now. Yeah. Which is very exciting. Mm, absolutely. And it, was, it, it really is this sort of last five years that it's, it's really snowballed. Cabaret becoming a genre again, yeah. I should say. Because, mm. you know, it was before. I don't know. There's been a little bit of a renaissance. Absolutely. I think it all kicked off really about six, five, six years ago when Ben Waters came to Time Out and the cabaret section opened. And I know Simone was the one that championed it before, but Ben, to my mind, that was a little golden age of cabaret. And I loved how... I know you're not everyone on agree, but I loved the fact that Ben was very engaged with the alternative side of cabaret. It wasn't just pretty girls in black dresses singing beautiful songs, cabaret. It was David Hoyle um, stuff that was going on in the kind of queer scene and the alternative Scotty scene. Scotty, Johnny yeah. Woo, Lisa Lee at Bistro Tech, all of that sort of stuff was really getting to the forefront yeah. through what Ben was doing. And now, of course, time out. I've gone and upset pretty much everybody I know <laughs> by getting rid of not only the cabaret section, but also the LGBT section. No, they didn't. Yeah. I didn't realise they did that so at when the same it went, time. When it went free, I think cabaret especially, and LGBT to a big extent, don't have the type of budgets that the theatre companies do. Mm. And we relied on that listing. And I know a lot of it's still listed online and... You can do your own promotion in various ways without a budget. But Time Out circulates so massively. Yeah. Well, the circulation's, I think, more than quadrupled because of the fact it's, it's gone free. free. Yeah. But the cost of that was reducing it. Yeah. Mm. Oh, so sad. So sad. So how have you found it sort of on the cabaret circuit? Because you're, for people who haven't seen you, you're... you're way of approaching drag is quite different to what you would expect. For example, from, I guess, public consciousness, pop culture, RuPaul's Drag Race. Yes. You, you wouldn't really see you competing on that. I think if it came over here, I would go for it. I think you totally should. Because I... I love RuPaul's Drag Race. It's oh my God, such a good show. Who doesn't? Who doesn't? It's amazing. And I love that it has really regenerated an interest in drag. I do, however, hate the fact that a lot of young 20-something boys now come to see a drag queen and think they need to talk to me in a certain way or use a voice or use a certain lingo as if it's our secret code and we're back in the 60s and we're speaking with Polari. It's not... There's something about it that I really find distasteful almost, that there's a slight... For every ten steps forward RuPaul has done for drag, I feel the drag race has also done two or three backwards. My biggest pet peeve in the world is their use of the term fishy. Because I very much... I mean, one of my main... My kind of standout piece that I'm always being booked to do 
talks about drag and it's a kind of poem and I talk about the fact that I'm kind of post-drag and post-feminist and it's past this idea of standing on stage in a dress to try and pretend to be a woman. It's about playing with gender and playing with form for enjoyment and for fun and for comedy, but not at anyone's expense. And a lot of the... There's a big hoo-ha over their use of the word tranny, which I understand from the trans community, people that are transitioning may take offence to their use of the word tranny. And if that's the case, that's the case. But I don't really understand why that was such a hoo-ha, but saying that someone is serving fish to mean they look like a woman is acceptable. Kind of offensive. Yeah. As a female viewer, I can't, it turns me off a little bit. Yeah. And I love so much about it, and I love oh. the free... So when I hear things like that, it, it, it kind of breaks my heart a little bit, because mm. I feel slightly excluded from this special club, because... Yeah. And it's also this weird dichotomy where I'm like, but you're trying to look female you're trying to engage with femininity mm. and to some extent women but on the other hand you're, you're saying something that's incredibly derogatory i yeah. don't it, it makes me confused about the relationship yeah. that drag has to actual women and and I, that's something I, I will probably be puzzling over for the rest of my life to be honest because yeah. i think it's different for everyone i mean in rag, drag race there are so many brilliant queens and i think rupaul mm has been very clever and very strategic in choosing when is the right time for the right type of act to win, almost. I don't want to say he sat there and thought politically who should win, but there are definite choices within who has won and who has done well. The mixture of the, the sort of the 12 or 16 or however many they do each season has always been very good. You've had traditional queens and then gender fuck queens. Although I don't feel anyone has ever taken it as far as they could. I loved Milk in the most recent season. He didn't deserve to win. He deserved to go when he went. Um, but straight away I didn't even think about it, but I'm referring to Milk as he. Mm. Because I don't... It is drag, but I don't think of him in that kind of traditional drag queen bracket. Whereas if I was talking about perhaps Bianca Del Rio, I would say she. Yeah. And I love Bianca. She's phenomenal. And I'm so pleased someone who has what in many ways are considered the traditional drag skills of looking great, having a filthy and quick mouth and a dirty sense of humour could still win. Because she's so brilliant and she was a master of the craft. There's no, there's no taking that away from her. But personally, I get I was more excited by people like Raja. The mixture of politics and gender and fashion and engaging with what he is doing was just so exciting for me. And the show needed people like that. So have you found that the, the drag scene has been affected quite heavily by the show? Yeah. Yeah. Hugely. Is it? This is a quick. Quick, slightly bitchy question. Is it a sort of burlesque Dita situation where suddenly loads of people are now interested in doing drag and there's an influx of newbies? It's not that at all, actually. Oh, okay. I'm... There's a big hoo-ha, actually, on the... what I would call the more traditional, conventional drag circuit about Drag Idol, which I would never enter Drag Idol because I don't want to work on the Two Brewers, Black Cap, traditional drag circuit. I don't just turn up and sing a top 40 hit 
tell a few jokes to a bunch of drunk people. And that's one ilk of drag. I made it sound really negative, so I'm sorry for that. I didn't mean it to come across as negative. <laughs> but my choice is to work in the performance art end of drag. And I play around in and out of drag a lot. Um, my night at Finger in the Pie, Madame Jojo's, is probably my most traditional drag performance because I usually keep my clothes on. I keep it fairly clean and I don't do anything too off the wall because you've got a mixed bag of an audience. And my number one priority is to make sure each act gets that attention. It's not about me fucking around or making a point. I find plenty of time to make a point. <laughs> you but... still manage, I was going to say. <laughs> but it's but not... it's more gentle. Yeah, it's more gentle and it's that thing of it isn't all about me. Whereas I got into Cabaret to do more what I find the more exciting and the more theatrical. More weird stuff. Yeah. yeah. Um, and whereas now, I think as a result of Drag Race, firstly, lip sync has come back, which scares me slightly because I find lip syncing quite reductive and there are very few people who can do it and make it live and exciting. Dickie Bow, anybody who thinks they understand what lip sync is and wants to give it a go should watch Dickie Bow's Judy Garland performance from his Blackout show. It's about a seven minute piece using Britney Spears' music and then some Judy Garland interviews about her life falling apart towards the end and her children. And that is, as far as I'm concerned, the, like the master of lip sync. It's beautifully edited, it's immaculately performed and he's travelled all over the world with it. It's phenomenal. There's two, to my mind, too many queens who are not focusing on a performative talent because of a costume and a lip sync. Yeah. Choosing an old Whitney song, knocking up a dress, walking on stage, to me, isn't anything new. And the whole point of drag is it should be exciting and it should be playing with the live element. And if you're not even speaking, I don't know how to do that. I personally have never lip sunk. How do you say the past tense of lip, lip sync? Lip synced. Lip synced? I think so. I've never needed to lip sync for my life. Um, <laughs> and I, I'm playing around with something at the moment that I might use in the not too distant future that would involve lip sync. But the lip sync issue for me, it doesn't seem very live. There are, there are lots of people on the scene who are very good at it as well. Meth mm. um, is phenomenal and I love some of his. I recently. I was going to ask about Meth because, oh well, I'd love to interview Meth as well. But just again, you instantly saying he rather than she to refer to yes. Meth because of the way he presents himself on the scene is so blurring that line yep. between male, female, yeah. I mean, meth character, is... drag. But again, Meth, well, Meth is drama school trained as well. Yes. So it's performance art. Performance art. It's performance art on stage in the drag arena is how I would pretentiously refer to it. It isn't. He is a drag queen. He is a genderfuck. And I love it. Yeah. Um, God, that makeup just... I love it so much. Oh, who's got the time? Who's got the time? No, but I'm so glad that he does because it's incredible to look at. (laughs) Oh, I was doing a gig for Ruby Jones at the Vauxhall Tavern a while ago 
and meth and bourgeoisie and holster and we were just kind of getting dressed and changed and makeup and stuff and then there was a photographer there who wanted to come and do some backstage shots and basically we were like no 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 it it happens so often people want to do all intimate and catch the drag queen off guard and all that sort of crap and there was a collective no and I was kind of like, yeah, I just don't want them to see my shit boots, buy one, get one free makeup. Because everyone <laughs> else there was with these, like, huge palettes and brushes, and they were pounding their faces to within an inch of their life. Yeah. My approach to drag is very... It's almost more minimalist. Yeah. I mean, I have huge lashes and a lot of lip gloss, a bit of foundation, a big wig. But it's not... It's not all the contouring. No, I never... Putting a new face on top of exactly. your face. It's and... my face with a little bit of glamour. Um, but that said, I, it's not like I'm um, Courtney Act or someone who looks like her. Courtney doesn't do... He- she does wear a lot of makeup, I think, actually. But she doesn't pound her face to look like it's drag. She pounds it to make it look beautiful and feminine I just do the lashes eyeliner bit of foundation done and that's not because it's not really for a political point it's more I don't want to change my appearance because so often I'm coming in and out of drag in Mm. performance when I did icons at the Soho theatre I changed from my drag character into another character in two and a half minutes while a video played and so I had to put drag on in the dark in two and a half minutes so I learned how to do it really fucking quickly and what makes the difference so I played around at that point with makeup a lot to know what I need personally to make the look work never say never I think as I get older I might need to start using a bit more makeup <laughs> who knows you know yeah. but it's no um, meth and Meth and the success of the Meth Lab, which is brilliant, is very much the new wave of drag, to my mind, that is powered by the RuPaul Drag Race generation. So over the last few years on the cabaret scene, do you feel like you've you've found your niche? Are you still exploring your niche? Because you have so many sort of strings to your bow. Yes. Yeah, I mean... I'm feeling a lot more settled now than I was a few years ago because I have a couple of nights at Celador which fulfil my desire to be a musical star knowing I never will be. <laughs> I love singing and I love choosing repertoire and having fun with it and Sarah the pianist I work with at Celador is phenomenal and we have a lot of fun and there's something about playing songs that were never meant to be played on a piano like Britney Spears' Toxic, hearing that on a piano is a feat of engineering. It's just brilliant. Um, so we have a lot of fun. And then at Finger in the Pie on a, mon- on a Sunday is really good for me because I've been working at a lot of gigs on my own, being quite, oh, this is my night here or my night there, was this as a company night and there's 10 to 12 different acts every month. Lots of networking, lots of meeting new people but also just seeing what everyone else is up to. Um, I don't do an awful lot of mixed bill nights, um, or if I do, I'm usually just booked to do my Stonewall poem, because I think a lot of times people aren't quite sure what they should book me to do, if I'm not comparing. Yeah. 
which is fine. I get that. Yeah, and I think people, audiences seem to enjoy that because I think I think my main reason for how my drag evolved was as a young, just out gay man, drag queens used to terrify me. <laughs> and I always wanted to take the fear out of drag. I still want that thing of when a drag queen enters the room, it changes the atmosphere. I still want to hold court and I still want to be as a drag queen, the one in the middle of it all holding everything together. But I don't want people to come in and be like, oh, oh, is he going to pick on me? Oh, it's sitting at the front. I don't want that to go. Oh, don't come near me. Don't come. You know, all of that stuff. I, That's what I equate with the end of the peer era of drag. The aggressive and bullying for everyone else's entertainment. And part of my physical appearance, I think, comes from the fact that I wanted to break down this wall of I'm a perfectly creative drag queen. I love coming out and saying I'm Michael Twaits man in a dress. <laughs> um, making a joke that it was seven pounds from River Island or whatever it is. I have some lovely couture gowns that I do wear for certain gigs or certain pieces. But whenever I'm comparing, I just chuck all of my cheap buy one get one free top shop dresses, sequins and sparkles, and off I go. And there's something relatable about that yeah. and making a joke out of it and the fact that it is very, you know, Cheryl Cole's rejects sort of fashion sense. <laughs> um, it's good fun. It, it, it kind of, it does put the audience at, at ease a little bit. Mm. Um, they are very good at sort of holding the room together as well. Obviously, uh, we've kind of done a pricey kind of tour through your career up until recently-ish. Mm -hmm. um, so you've got some exciting things on the horizon, I hear. Yes, I've, I'm doing a new theatre show in November at the Mimetic Festival, which is in the Bolts in Waterloo. And I was very pleased and fortunate because I won the bursary, thanks to the power of Facebook. Yay! So. Not only am I doing a show, but there's some money behind it, which is always a joy. Yeah. And such a rarity. <laughs> That's amazing. That yes. But the, such a relief it for is. any it performer. Just, because I've done maybe five, six shows since graduating that I've written, produced and directed, or whatever you want to call it. It's been completely my baby. since, And some of them have gone... I mean, Confessions went from in a studio at Mountview to Oval House, Oval House for a bit longer, Oval House for a bit longer, small tour, and then it went to Trafalgar Studios in the West End. And I was kind of like, well, what else can I do? Because other than doing international touring, and it, that show wouldn't have worked. It was a very British show, I think. Mm -hmm. um, I didn't really know where else I could go with it, which was amazing. And then I've written other ones that you do a little run of it and you kind of think, that's it though. That's all that one needed. It just needed to come out and be done a bit. Um, but sometimes you feel that show never got running because the funding wasn't behind it or there wasn't enough time for it. And the Arts Council are brilliant at trying to support young artists and interesting work, but there's just not enough money to go round. Um, so sometimes you do find, think, well, I've got this show and it's only going to be 50% of its capacity because I haven't had the time and the freedom to actually lock myself in the rehearsal room and do nothing else. 
um, for the whole time that you would want to. Yeah. Obviously, you do rehearse a bit, <laughs> just not quite as much as you would have liked. Yeah. But yeah, the new show is called The Libertine Has Left the Building. And basically, when I was developing Confessions, I worked with, basically I had three kind of project mentors. One was Ben, who worked at Oval House. One was Lucy Ellenson, who is an amazing performer and artist in her own right. And she's currently touring the world with a show called Grounded, which is all about weaponized drones. And she's the actress in it, and someone else has written it and stuff, but it's an amazing show. Um, she's always often really exciting things. And then the other mentor was Betty Bourne, who is a legend of queer theatre and had a company called Blue Lips, won an off-Broadway, an Obie off-Broadway in, I can't remember what the I stands for, but it's called an Obie, big New York award yeah. for kind of not being on Broadway, but being off-Broadway. Yeah. With Split Britches, they did a version of Streetcar Named Desire. And he kind, won of like, kind of like the Offies, the Off-West End Awards in yes. London. Yeah. Yeah. Basically, the offies ripped off the offies. Um, <laughs> yes, but wow. that's a good thing. I think it's brilliant that there are some fringe awards now because a few years ago there weren't, and fringe work needs to be supported more than it is. Anyway, Betty basically is a queer legend. He is, let's be polite and say, well over 50. <laughs> and he kind of came in as a bit of a project father figure and just threw out a few pearls of wisdom and was amazing to work with for a very short period. But one of the key scenes in Confessions was looking at the idea that there's this kind of urban myth that every seven years all of the cells in your body regenerate. So that skin flakes away and new skin grows, or your hair, whatever it is. So in seven years' time, what is actually the same? in your body, what's kept you as you. So as I was exploring personality, it made sense to be exploring what physically holds your personality together. Getting a bit academic here, mm. or, anyway. So Betty said, you know what you should do, darling? You should put a note in the diary in seven years time and just write the whole fucking thing again. Because <laughs> I was like, that's a really good idea. Because coming back to this idea of performative self and what it means to be a gay man and all of that, is um, everything's changed for me in the last seven years. I mean, just taking one element of the show, the drag element, when I came into the cabaret, I felt it was oversaturated with performers who were just putting on a dress and being insulting. End of the pier is my term for it, which I know not everyone will agree with, but that old-fashioned style of drag in the last seven years, we've had a complete transformation into everyone's trying to be a, an art queen or a genderfuck, and it's... So the scene's really changed and evolved. So now I'm going to go back to my way of developing work, looking at that. Mm. And then, politically, so much has changed. I mean, seven years ago, things were changing, but when I first came out, for example, we couldn't get civilly partnered or married, we can adopt children. Um, there are a lot of issues. And now we can. Mm. But also now there's issues internationally. You know, I'm very fortunate that I was born British, I was born white, and I was born to a middle-class family that have accepted my way of life. And now my, my family and my partner's family 
are its family is also close and it, there's no oh they're the gays you know there's nothing yeah. weird about it but there's a real I still think there's more to be done and I still think there is an apathy and there's still homophobia so it's basically coming back to that in a with new eyes and seeing how the show will develop there's bits of it that I've already written that are I'm really excited about there's bits of it that I'm like I know what I want to say and how I want to do it but I just can't get it to fucking work yeah but it's okay. We've got two and a half months. Well, is that what you, that's what you do in the rehearsal room. Though, exactly. Isn't it? That's yeah. Where you have all the bits that don't but work, and you try and make them. Work. When you're when you're working solo, I mean, I'm going to have a few project mentors again to come in and work with me. But when you're working solo, you're kind of always in the rehearsal room because you're walking around town on your way somewhere, and you hear a piece of music like, "Oh, that could really work for this scene. Oh, that could be that. Yeah. Oh, oh, I want to say something. You know, I've always got notes on my iPhone about." ideas of where things can develop and yeah. it's always in the forefront of your mind and the other I think the other thing that has really interested me in the way my work's developed and what I'm writing I I don't have a huge output of work even on the cabaret circuit I don't really perform something until I'm very happy with it and when I was younger and just starting out I could write things I was happy with much quicker I'm now a lot more critical but I also think I'm a lot, I find it a lot harder to write because I'm in a different place in my life. When I was writing Confessions, I was at drama school six days a week, basically. On my day off, I was in a call centre and a couple of evenings I was working in a bar. I was living in South London, travelling to North London and was 20 odd grand in debt, dating and being screwed around with by plenty of men. And I was kind of like, there's enough going on in my life to write 50 shows. Whereas now, I'm a little bit older, I'm in a long-term relationship, and I'm very happy. And it's fucking hard to write exciting work when you're happy. I mean, Adele's next album, I think is going to be a doozy, because <laughs> she's sat at home, she's got her kid, she's got her partner, she's got her Oscars and her Grammys. She's got a cup of tea. Yeah, what are you going to whinge about? You know? <laughs> It's, it is hard to get motivated in some ways mm. to really, the things you're passionate about, you're passionate about in a different way. Yeah. And it's hard to energise that into writing that's going to work in the way I want it to work. It's partially environment as well, because drama school and university, you're constantly surrounded by ideas, people forcing you to think about ideas, people forcing you to bend your mind around ideas mm. in different ways whereas when you kind of come out of that environment into the world you've got like okay bills job responsibilities you're not you don't have people just saying go sit in that room for three hours and mm. think about things and talk to people about things big ideas you don't have that stimulus yeah but i also i also think though the the most creative time i had was after i left drama school mm. because suddenly i was in the industry and I was doing everything I could to establish myself but as I said I was working in a call centre working at a bar um, living in a horrible house share and it was in a way all of that stuff drove me on more than the creative freedom of drama school mm. because it gave you more motivation I guess yeah mm. it was it's a little bit of desperation there yeah to... and that's not to say that I don't no, think anything I write now will be interesting <laughs> but the but you come about things a different way I guess yeah 
Mm, well, I look forward to the show. So sure are they? <laughs> no, <laughs> no I'm really exciting. excited. It sounds really great. Yeah, sounds really good. I'll make sure it's in the diary. I have to come see it. Absolutely, yeah. So, um, to wrap up, because I think we're getting getting down to the wire now. Okay. Oh, sad. It's been so much fun. Yes. Yeah. Um. So the question I ask, literally everyone, mm-hmm. except for maybe one time that I forgot it by mistake, <laughs> is um, what is the best thing that's ever happened to you on stage, and what's the worst thing that's ever happened to you on stage? The best thing, I think for both of them, it will come down to audience reaction because I always, the whole point of it being live performance, what I love about live performance is the audience and the reaction. Um, One of the best things, I'm sure if you asked me another day I would say something else. Um, The first time I performed my Stonewall piece probably actually should come up here. And the first time I performed it outside of it being in a show and I got like a standing ovation and people were really like, yeah, yeah. And I was like, oh, oh, it works. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, but the, there was a time when I did icons at the Soho Theatre, Jonathan Price, who is Perone in the film version of Evita with Madonna, he was in the audience. What? Just randomly, just came to see a show at the Soho Theatre. Oh my God. Thought, yeah. I love London. <laughs> Absolutely. But the show was all about celebrity culture and one of my the character that kind of compared it all together talked about a lot about celebrity culture and there's one person that you can't avoid almost when you're talking about the phenomenon of identity and celebrity culture and that's Madonna and I was always quite negative about Madonna in the fact that I think she her music does its job and it's great if that's what you like (laughs) but as a figure I'm kind of like she's a jack of all trade master of nuns and I can't remember quite what the joke was but I made a Madonna joke and I just caught Jonathan Price aside. He was pissing himself. And I was just kind of like, well, job done. <laughs> it was just... It's always tempting when you know someone's in the audience to play up to it. But it, in that case, it was tempting to... Oh, I can't, tell, I can't say it when he's in the room. I can't say it when he's in the room. <laughs> but, yeah. But he loved it. He did. That's amazing. Yeah. yeah. I don't think he enjoyed the whole show. But he definitely enjoyed the Madonna moment. <laughs> Um, there was a Gary Glitter character, and I think that was too close to the bone for him. Um, yeah. yeah, it was that sort of humour, though. Yeah, well, yeah. If you can't, if you can't go there, then absolutely, you got you got to at least try push the boat out. Yeah, it was a nine o'clock show in Soho. It wasn't, <laughs> you know, it wasn't a kids' tour when I was, was making jokes. Definitely there, after but, the uh, watershed. Yeah. <laughs> what about the worst thing? Um, the worst thing was I. The press night for my first ever show at the Oval House, a member of the audience, we'd had a, it was a press night, we had made cocktails downstairs, and it was some kind of camp pink. I think it was a Singapore sling, because we'd been sponsored by Beef Eater Gin, so that would make sense, but it was pink anyway, and ginny. <laughs> and one member of the press had got shit-faced. The member of the press, I don't really, I'm not going to get too far into it and say who it was, but they're not, it's not like it was Lynn Gardner or someone, but it was um, someone who writes one of the pink magazines, papers, um, and was coming out of transitioning in gender and found my work a bit too prolific to hand on. So basically he had heckled me through 90% of the show 
it was interactive and therefore it was, I could handle it. But it was also, this is my first ever press night, my own show in Ion Theatre. And someone who has been invited to see it for free and given cocktails is heckling me, what the hell. Anyway, it went on and on and on until the curtain call, I was taking my bow. And they stood up and shouted, don't applaud that cunt. I just stood and took the applause, bowed and walked off and then had a little cry in the dressing room. Oh my lord! Because it was... I think if something like that happened now, it'd be very different for me. I would hold my own in a different way. It's a performer's experience. But I've literally only graduated three or four weeks earlier from drama school. And, well, yeah, it must, it's coming up for exactly seven years ago it would have happened because I'm doing the new show to mark seven years on. But the, as a result, it turned out to be one of the best things that happened because there's one thing that the gay press are very good at and that's creating a bit of a hoo-ha. And when that hoo-ha happened at the show, everyone was talking about it back at that magazine and that magazine and that magazine. And the next day, Time Out came, Gay Times came, Attitude Magazine came. So a much higher calibre of reporter came because they were like, oh, we had this happen. We had a thing happen. We had What's this a controversial show? Yeah. And it was that it was a case of there's no such thing as bad advertising or bad publicity or whatever. But what an experience yeah. for a just was a wet real, behind the ears performer. Was that like, was an introduction to cabaret at geez. its wildest. Yeah. Deep end immediately. Mm. That's so God <laughs> And I thought just, like, blank faces was the worst. Oh, but... no. I mean, I do now want to get the phrase don't applaud that cunt on a t-shirt, because I think it's a great catchphrase. <laughs> I'd buy it. Yeah. That's amazing. Mm. It's so interesting talking to you, because I, in the cabaret circuit, I'm always trying to find those people who, for me, as someone who comes from the theatre side of things as well, always trying to find those people who think about cabaret in those terms, and trying to smush the two sides of it together Mm. so that cabaret and theatre works and theatre and cabaret works and I was trying to find people who manage to do those things and it sounds like the way you think about them is just it's just an overall performative art form is such an it's such an exciting concept I hope so I mean I'm another thing I should have mentioned earlier when I talk about RuPaul's Drag Race as a result of it and how you said like there are so many people that want to get into drag um with Finger in the Pie, the guys that do the Sunday Night at Madame Jojo's, I'm now getting ready to do some drag workshops where I'm going to be running a course on drag. And we we talked about it a lot, but the reason I'm running it as the kind of course convener is because of the fact I think I'm probably the most variable drag queen in the fact that sometimes I'm doing singing, sometimes I'm doing comedy-ish stuff, sometimes very avant-garde performance, and that, and it's quite a transparent character that varies a lot. So I'm running it with some guest lecturers, so we've, or guest speakers, I don't know what we're calling them really, mm-hmm. but Myra Dubois is coming in and she's doing a kind of masterclass in comedy, and improvised comedy, and just kind of that live, sparky element that she is, well... Basically, I, we were looking at our core structure and there were two things we wanted and one of them was the kind of comedy improv side and one was the avant-garde and lip-sync sort of alternative performance. So our two first choices were the people we approached and they both said yes. So we've got Myra coming in to do that and then we've got Meth coming in to do the avant-garde lip-sync Yay. stuff. 
Um, and that's really exciting. That sounds fantastic. Yeah, so that's going to be... I think we're hoping to start late October, and then there's going to be a showcase at the... It'll either be at Madame Jojo's or at the Vaults for Mimetic mm. um, for all the drag queens, and myself, Meth and Myra will also perform. Oh my God, I'm coming. Um, and kind of compare it all. I'm absolutely coming to see that. Because there'll be some... <laughs> I mean, we're hoping there'll be some drag queens who are getting established but want to come and talk about how to improve how to network get some where, direct information get some direction really yeah. the because there's a lot of opportunities on the drag scene to do a poor man's version of RuPaul's Drag Race live on stage every week but you don't get the support or mentoring in a safe environment it's very public mm. so we're trying to create somewhere where you can come and workshop. if you've never tried drag before, yeah. you can develop it, and by the end you will have an act. Yeah. Or, if you're getting established, you can come and really polish and establish. But also, we're going to everybody's going to take part in all the elements. So even though I don't do lip sync, during the lip sync section, everyone's going to have a little homework project, and I will do one too. Brilliant. So we are all going to be creating new work. And some of us will walk away being, I'm never going to lip sync again. But I'm hoping also one of the lip syncers will walk away from singing and be like, fuck this, I can sing. So lay some links on me. Where can people find you out in the universe? Um, website is michaeltwaites.com. Twitter is at michaeltwaites. Facebook.com slash michaeltwaites. And that links to everything. So it's just your name. Michael Twaits. Literally everything. It is. That's good. You've got a monopoly on it. Well, thank you so, so much for you. chatting to me today and letting me get to hear a little bit about your your incredibly rich and varied life of cabaret. <laughs> <laughs> it's so exciting. Thank you, listeners, as well. I've been Rosie Cole. You can find me all over the internet. You can find me at rosiecole.com, facebook.com forward slash rosiecoledancer. You can find me on Twitter at rosie underscore cole. None of these are the same, which is really probably annoying. <laughs> like you, Michael, you've got them all neatly under just one name. I've got them all spread about. Um, and then if you have anything you want to say about the podcast, people you think I should interview, suggestions, comments, I'd love to do a listener Q&A episode if possible. Um, please send me an email at rosiecoldancer at gmail.com because I'd love to hear from you. And um, yeah, as performers, I guess we're nothing without an audience. So thank you so much for listening and have a great day.